everyone, it's Randy Holsey here with Backstage Pass Radio, and I'm joined today by a local artist that is the visual timekeeper for a local band called the Swamp Hippies. He has also seen the glitz and glamour of the Sunset Strip in Hollywood and has played alongside such rock royalty as Warrant, Rat, and Poison, just to name a few. We will take a walk down memory lane and see what my guest Randy St. John is up to right after this. This is Backstage Pass Radio, the podcast that's designed for the music junkie with a thirst for musical knowledge. Hi, this is Adam Gordon, and I want to thank you all for joining us today. Make sure you like, subscribe, and turn alerts on for this and all upcoming podcasts. And now, here's your host of Backstage Pass Radio, Randy Halsey. Randy, how are you? Good to good. see you, man. Good, good to good. see you. Thanks for coming in, uh, chatting with me today. I think the last time that we probably ran into each other was at one of my Romero shows, probably pre-COVID. It's probably been a while. Yeah, yeah. I saw you there. And uh, again, Romero's is one of my favorite restaurants. So we go there all the time. So I was surprised to see you. So. It, uh, it, it seems like we eat there three or four nights a week sometimes it's uh <laughs> I, don't, I can understand I don't, you know how's the family doing post-covid uh fine the covid didn't really affect my work too much which was fantastic family wise nobody that i know in my family has contracted covid some are getting vaccinated some are not you know but everything's been been wonderful for us i mean i know it's been horrible for a lot of people but we are one of the few uh, the lucky ones yeah for sure i think there was only i think my daughter was the only one in the immediate family to get actually diagnosed with covid but she's also a nurse at a major hospital here in town that was working in the covid unit so um, it was inevitable that she might contract it from being in the same place with a lot of people that already had the the virus yeah, we had a we had a few people at my work that contracted it, and uh, actually, my closest coworker that rides with me in a truck every day, he got it, and I cannot believe I didn't. Wow, so it's uh, pretty amazing. But uh, like I said, all in all, everything's been fine. That's good. Now, did it slow you down work wise? Did you guys feel an impact uh, where you're working, like with the the workload? Did it slow down a little bit during COVID? March. And that was it. Um, really? We had a great January, February. It um, it kind of slowed things down just because nobody knew what was going on or what to expect. Then we were deemed essential workers somehow, being in you know surveying and construction mm-hmm. and what have you. So we picked right back up, haven't missed a beat. We're on uh, on course to have a really great year uh, with the company. So that's fine. good. That's great. I know that in my line of work, there was some impact there for sure, but. Oil and gas, you know, oil was down in the shitter for a while. And that, you know, a lot of my customers are oil and gas customers. So I felt a little bit of the wrath of it. But so you and I are basically kind of neighbors. Like we're not neighbors in the same neighborhood, but we live in the same area in the Cypress area. And we were talking before the show that you guys were down off Highway 6 before. And now you're out in Cypress proper. Uh, And how long have you been out in this area now? Uh, November of last year, moved out there. Um, I sold my house. Actually, we moved to Cyprus in November, and I didn't sell my house until February. So, uh, but we actually moved in November. So, yep, I love it. I mean, it reminds me a lot of Mississippi. Yeah, you know, uh, pine trees, things sure. like that. Yeah, so for sure, I like it. 
Well, that's a great segue. So let's 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 set the listeners straight because you kind of set me straight before we uh, before we went on and started recording. You were not born in Mississippi, but the whole your whole family was from Mississippi. Is every, that is that yeah, right? Every single aunt, uncle, cousin, uh, mom and dad, really? brothers, sisters, everybody was born in Mississippi except for me. And I was on the the tail end of my father's Air Force career, and he happened to be stationed in Salina, Kansas, on the Air Force base, and that's where I was born. Interesting. I missed out. <laughs> so you grew, would you say that it was Kansas where you grew up then? No, no, no. I was only there about a year and a half. Okay. And then we went to uh, Miami Beach, Florida, then to Albany, New York. And then finally, uh, when I was in the third grade, moved to Pearl, Mississippi. And uh, that's that's basically my, from there till the eighth grade. And again, we had talked bef- about this before. Is that, uh, That's where we met Ty. Ty Tabor and I lived three houses away from each other. So that kind of connected us many years down the road. Sure. I'm sure we'll get to that at some point. Yeah, for sure. My mom was born in Vicksburg, so she's a she's a Mississippi girl. Yeah, I, I have a lot of family there. So. I love Mississippi. It's a beautiful place. And like I said, even though we moved out later on in life, I mean, uh, my mom and my brothers still lived there for quite some time before everybody decided to move to Texas. And, and I would visit frequently at least once a year to go back to see everybody. So Yeah. Now, growing up as a kid, at what age did you get interested in music or even more so learning a musical instrument? You know, I think we all start hearing music at a very young age, right? But some never pick up wanting to be an artist or a, or a instrumentalist. Like, do you remember that far back, like, when oh. you really got interested in, I want to be this or that? Yeah, um, Living around the corner from Ty, his father and his brother and, and uh, Ty himself, they were in a bluegrass band. So I became introduced to actual musicians for the first time through that relationship with Ty and his family. And um, my mom and dad got together and bought me this crappy little Sears, or I think it was actually Montgomery Ward drum set that I proceeded to beat holes in immediately. But, you know, Ty has, has talked about this before, but... Um, We used to play in his front yard, just kind of banging around, and there was a band uh, that was uh, right across the street. He lived in Bermuda Circle. And um, I can't remember the name of the band they were in, but two of the musicians, Mickey Pogue, and uh, I think, I don't know if Tommy Aldridge is in that band, but Tommy Aldridge was from Pearl. But nonetheless, they would come out of their rehearsal room and drive past us and laugh at us and stuff so it was kind of so was this the same tommy aldridge from ozzy osbourne oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. He, he, he was uh he grew up in pearl so. that's interesting I, I had somebody the other day maybe it was a co-worker that said something about does he live in high meadow ranch is he local here in houston now i don't know um all i know is that and, and i say i don't want to say that he grew up in pearl but his family was in pearl for a time okay and, and after at some point he I guess his first major gig was Black Oak, Arkansas, if I remember correctly. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, and then uh, went on from there. But I got to meet Tommy once in the Rainbow in L.A. It was really – No kidding. He was kind of like my – besides Bonham, my biggest hero. So that was a that was a wonderful shining moment. Wow. I guess to finally get to meet him. So. Well, the first time that I ever heard of Tommy Aldridge, he was on tour with Ozzy. And I'm like, wow, this guy, he's a phenomenal drummer. And I'm not a drummer, but, you know, I – think I know a pretty decent drummer when I hear one play right but 
but I think he's floated around with a lot of big names. Was he considered kind of like a, a hard gun or, or would you say I, that he was maybe a hard gun, a session guy that traveled around and latched on to different bands? Yeah, I guess you could kind of look at it that way. I don't know if that's the way he may, he would want to have himself categorized, okay. but Fair he enough. has played continuously uh, ever since I've heard his name. And sure. it's been various bands from, you know, Black Oak, Arkansas to Pat Travers, which Pat yeah. Travers is one of my favorite bands. Yeah. Been, of course, White Snake and and then the Aussie thing, and I'm not sure exactly who he's playing with right now, but um, he, I'm, he's playing with somebody. Yeah, he's, he's played <laughs> with many A listers for sure. Oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So was drums the first instrument of interest to you, and was it the only instrument that you were interested in? Because I think a lot, you know, start out on one thing and then gravitate to something else later on. Was it always drums for you? Well, I always loved guitar, but it was not really meant for me. I guess the way after the little dabble with me and Ty back in the third grade when I was uh, in the eighth grade when we had moved to uh, Grand Prairie, Texas, my best friend, Alan Lewis, his brother, Carl Lewis, was in a band called Wits End, and we used to go watch him rehearse all the time. And so me and Alan and our other best friend, Richie Morris, uh, we all hung out together, and we decided one day, well, let's put together a band, you know, and Richie said, well, I want to play guitar, and Alan knew his not going to be as good as his brother was on guitar. He said, well, I'll play bass. And I said, well, okay, well, I'll, I guess I'll play drums. And it's kind of how it started. And then um, I guess the sad part of the story is my dad had passed away, and my mom knew I was, I was wanting to play drums, so she said, you know, go find a drum set. So wow. I did. And, Interesting. Uh, we went to go check it out with me and Richie. And uh, I was looking at it. It was beautiful. It was what I wanted. It was an old Ludwig psychedelic red, which I don't know why they call it psychedelic red because it's red, green, and blue swirls. Oh, really? You know, it's okay. really, it's really neat looking. And the guy said, "Well, sit down and play. Make sure you like it." And I said, "Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never really played." You know, and he goes, "Well, just sit down and bang on it." So I sat down and hit it a couple of times, and I just kind of jumped straight into a four-four groove and. And Richie looked at me and goes, man, I didn't know you could actually play. <laughs> and I said, well, I didn't I either. Didn't either. <laughs> exactly. So that's kind of where it started, and it kind of took off from there, from uh, Grand Prairie, Texas, in the eighth grade. Is that up around Dallas, yeah. Grand Prairie? Yeah, you've got Dallas, Irving, Grand Prairie, okay. Arlington, Fort Worth. I mean, all the mid-cities, there's umpteen, umpteen towns around there, but it's kind of southwest of Dallas technically, I guess. Okay, so. okay. Now, when would you say that you started – taking the drums serious you know everybody starts banging around and making some racket on right then just that day because um i kept playing and nothing really materialized with me and alan and richie i mean i love them to death but it just didn't really kind of take off and then i met some other players throughout high school and uh, my mom helped me with my second drum set which was another ludwig and met um, a few other players and and i guess it got serious when i met a bass player named uh, michael mullins at the time, he was living in Arlington with his wife, Linda Mullins, but they were from San Antonio, and he was just an incredible bass player, and he kind of took my playing to another level, and we actually, for the first time, put together a serious act, and we called ourselves Brittany, and we started playing the local clubs in you know, Grand Prairie and Arlington and Dallas and Fort Worth and what have you. Yeah, so. wow. Well, they, they do say that you become a better player when you surround yourself with better players, right? You kind of kind of pick your game up, right? Because yeah. I think a lot of musicians like to stay secluded in a closet or a, a studio in the house, and they never branch out. And it's there's a fear factor there, no right. doubt, right? But and, but I think the more you collaborate, 
whether you suck or whether you're good, I don't know how you judge musicians. I mean, I, I don't think music is a competition myself, but oh, I you, do. you should, you should, <laughs> I mean, you should always play with better, better right. players or somebody that helps you step your game up. Of course. And before I get in trouble, uh, Brittany being my first band, I've got to mention the singer, Gary Minner, Keith Kreider was a guitar player and Steve Davison was the uh, keyboard player. If, uh, if I didn't mention their names, they'd hunt, they'd hunt me down. So. <laughs> well, you, you've cleared it up then. <laughs> so how long was Brittany together? Uh, was that a short-lived project uh, or was that was there some longevity to it? It was okay. A couple of three years. I think we started when I was 19 and I believe the Sweet Savage project started around mm-hmm. 22 maybe 23 years old. So I was in Brittany for a couple of, okay. a couple of years. And, um, actually the two brothers, Chris and Lane from sweet savage, Chris and Lane Sheridan had moved down from Columbus, Ohio, and they were looking to put a band together and they came out to see Brittany because they wanted my guitar player, Michael Scott. Okay. And he was kind of like a stand in at kind of the end of Brittany. And also Lance Ross too. And Brittany, Whoa, I'd have got shot. Um, so they came to see um, Michael Scott and liked me too. Yeah, wow, <laughs> so, nice. Uh, they actually got a two for one, so that's kind of where it started. And then we all met together at a, an apartment on Greenville Avenue in Dallas, and uh, Lane played a, a tape of Joey because Joey was still up in Columbus, Ohio. Because oh, you know, Lane and Chris, all those guys were from Columbus, mm-hmm. and uh, we said that's the guy. And the next thing you know, Joey's down here, and boom, there you go. Yeah. He's, he said in his interview that he was rescued by you guys from being a hillbilly in uh, Columbus or in Ohio, right? So he got here as quick as he could to, to join, join forces with you guys. Back on, you know, back on the drumming piece, were you, were you in band in high school? Did no. you follow that track at all? Not at all. Um, I wish I would have because that's one of the biggest mistakes that I ever made was not learning how to read, read charts. I mean, I can read exercise charts but i could have done more as a career drummer if i knew how to read didn't really interest me and but back in the, those days when you talk in the 80s it was like okay let's just be a big rock star you know sure. reading music is for chumps you know yeah it's just idiot mentality yeah. I and mean, i wish it would have i wish it would have been different but. and and you know you're not the first one that has said that i've done a couple of interviews and in the first interview i did you know, I was a choir guy, you know, a vocalist kind of, um, but so I did the theory thing all through school. So I had a really good foundation of music. And one of my guests had mentioned that, you know, he probably regrets that the most because he really didn't have any guidance or somebody to push him to the choir, or to the band to get that musical background. So that's one of the things that he regrets much like yourself. And I'm, I'm, I was educated just recently in an interview. I, I interviewed Guy Gelso from Zebra, and, you know, he's teaching in the New Orleans area now. And, uh, like, I didn't know there was music to read for the drums, right? I just, I, I guess I was naive that it's, you just learn patterns on the drums, right? Even being a musician, I didn't realize that you could actually read music for drums, but I guess that, that you can, right? Uh, yeah, I didn't know that really much either. I mean, the way that I used to practice when I was growing up was just uh, turn my stereo up as loud as I could and play, play along, along with yeah. it. So that's yeah. what, that's how I learned how to play. And of course, that actually helped my meter as well. So when I go to the studio, I don't have any problem playing with a click track. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, of course, now later on in life, when I moved back from LA to Houston, I actually hooked up with a, a drum teacher, uh, Craig LeMay, and started 
trying to attempt to do the chart thing, but more so than that, he he saw something in me that he thought was lacking, I guess is a nice way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and he thought that he could help me, and it turns out that uh, he was one of the greatest influences in my career. Interesting. Well, I've often wondered, and this may sound like a silly question, but I've often wondered, like, how the the drummer is the timekeeper of the band, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you keep the beat? Is it is it in your head thing? or you, Yeah. It just, because how do you keep yourself from not speeding up a little bit or slowing down a little bit? I think I have a pretty good sense of tempo myself just being a solo artist, but, you know, you're, it's very important for the drummer to keep the beat if, if that's your job, right? So I didn't yeah. know how you keep it straight in your mind. Don't think about it. I just, I, you know, that's one of my, although I'm not, Technically flamboyant. Um, that's one of the things that kept me. That you have going for you. That I have going okay. for me, okay. yeah, is, is the fact that I don't have to fight the tempo thing. And then you get in the studio and you play along with the click track. A lot of a lot of guys just can't do that. Yeah. And it was always simple for me to do. And then live, I mean, you know, of course, you know, you have spots here and there that you might speed up and slow down depending on the the energy of the live show. Uh, I'm not going to sit there and say I'm absolutely perfect. Adrenaline, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. But, you know, yeah, it was never really a problem for me at all. And, and that's just, uh, I guess, a God-given talent. That sure. I have, so. And how many people really pick up on a slight increase or a decrease in speed? I mean. The studio engineer will. Well, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but they, you know, when yeah. you're you're at a live show and you've got 100 people or 500 people or however many you're playing to, I, I don't think that it's all that no, detective because no. most of them are not technical musicians to begin with. They're lovers or, or connoisseurs of music, but they're not. No, no, oh, no. wait a minute. I think he was a little off time there by one beat per measure or what or whatever, right? Now, if Craig LeMay was in, this, in the audience watching me, he'd be the one to say, yeah. Hey, <laughs> he Randy, raised his hand. Know, Randy, you better slow that down a little bit. You know, so. Who is inspiring you musically? In the high school time frame, like what were you into back then from a from a music perspective? Were you a rock guy? Were you a yeah. glam guy? Were you a no, 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 heavy no. metal guy? What were you back uh, back in the day? Black Sabbath, Alice Cooper, Led Zeppelin, uh, all the all the norm, you know, yeah. just for back in the day, the the seventies guys. Um, the, I guess the the drummer that grabbed me initially uh, was Simon Kirk, the drummer from oh, Bad Company, yeah. and then of course I of course loving Zeppelin. But, you know, when I started, Kirk was, was a little easier to understand. And then as I started to get better, I started to study John Bonham, uh, which he's a much more technical type drummer. So um, those were the two main influences for me starting out. And then the next one in line was Tommy Aldridge, you know, because yeah. uh, Pat Travers was uh, out, of, out of the Led Zeppelin Black Sabbath era. Pat Travers was, was like the first band of the kind of – creeping into the 80s a little bit that uh, really, really grabbed me because I loved all the syncopation, uh, kind of a combination of funk and rock, you know. I just, I loved Travers. And at the time, you know, well, Nico McGrain, excuse me, Nico McBrain was the first drummer for... Uh, Iron Maiden, right? Oh, no, what? for Pat Travers. Okay. And, and then, then Tommy Aldridge came in, and then Nico went to Iron Maiden after that. But uh, So, yeah, uh, Tommy Aldridge was third, so... Okay. So we talked... Um, a little bit about Britney. So that was kind of the, the, the first band, the first band that you were kind of doing things with, like right. and gigging and, and things of that nature, right? And then somewhere around the age of 23, I guess, Chris and, and Lane and Joey 
came yeah. along and you guys formed Sweet Savage. Correct. Which was hugely popular. You know, I remember you guys from the 80s for sure. Do you remember what year, around what year that was that Sweet Savage formed? I'm horrible with dates uh, myself. Man, I would, I'd have to say 82-ish. I mean, I know that when Joey and I left Sweet Savage, I think was around 88, the end of 88. And then uh, I stayed out in L.A., and I, I think I came back to Houston around 1990. Okay. 91, so. Would you say that the following was like night and day to Brittany, like what you guys had Oh, my followed? God. Sweet Savage. Off the charts, huh? It was, it was, um, it was amazing. I, I, I really, all of us couldn't believe what was going on, uh, how popular we were becoming. Uh, it, was a, it was a culture shock for sure. Yeah. Uh, and we we played it up to the hilt, that's for sure. How, how did you adapt to that culture shock? I mean, you went oh. from, you know, a fun band, you're playing around, you're playing some gigs, and then next thing you know, you're on Sunset Strip, you know, know, playing well, with some well, of the biggest names in the being world. Being a rock star without a rock record deal, you know, I mean, we were yeah. one of the most popular unsigned bands in the country. Uh, we, you know, we traveled all over. We had our own 24-foot rider, our own PA system, our own light show. Uh, we worked for John Bloomstrom's uh, booking agent, so we went all over the country. And so we were basically a touring band that just didn't have a deal yet. So sure. And you know, every place that we went to, uh, it was packed. Yeah. You know, it was uh, it was basically being a rock star without the deal. You yeah. Know, it was as close as you could get. So it was to, for me, it was a blast. I mean, it was no no problem whatsoever. I mean, I had a smile on my face every day. Yeah. Know? Not a lot of people don't get to that level, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a local a local gig here and there. Maybe oh, okay. Well, I traveled to this town or this city but there's no following you know they're just booking gigs and showing oh, up yeah, and we, playing. but I you mean, guys had the following everywhere you went yeah right? we played all over you know dallas houston austin san antonio go back to columbus and play the four state area there baltimore west virginia pennsylvania come down the east coast and play the carolinas get on to florida and this was all as an unsigned band and that was kind of i don't want to say unheard there, the bands at the time were kind of doing that but uh it was it was it was a good time, as good as you could get being a local band without being a signed band. Sure. And a lot of that had to do with Bloomstrom because he, he had all the connections to book all the bands in all these different places, and he had the big roster of all the bands, so he had the control and he had the, he had the clout to where he could actually you know get the bands to be able to make money and travel like that, so... Do you, do you remember what other bands he might have been booking, like doing the circuit thing back then? Does Do any yeah. of them stick out in your mind? Stiff was one of my favorite bands at yeah. the time, which eventually, I guess, morphed over into Lillian Axe. When, yes. uh, you know, uh, Stevie Blaze picked up Ron Taylor. Uh, they did the Lillian Axe thing. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of. Was he tied in with Mystic Cross? Do you remember that band from the? Uh, you know, the, 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 the thing about that time is that you didn't really get to see a lot of the other bands because as we would come into, let's say, Houston, whoever was on Bloomstrom's roster was, that was in Houston would be leaving town. So sometimes we crossed paths a little bit, but we were playing four and five nights a week. Sure. And so we really didn't get a chance to see a lot of the other bands. I, you know, we would every now and again. I mean, one that really stuck out was uh, Wrathchild America. They were a, a metal band, and, and we – we crossed paths somehow several times because whoever was booking that band also uh, they, he co-booked with John Bloomstrom. So every now and again, we would cross paths. And uh, uh, Shannon, the drummer for Rathchild, oh god, that guy's a freak, man. Really? I mean, I loved him to death, and um, we, we got to see those guys a few times. That's probably the best band 
that I remember from that time. I mean, they were they were metal, so it wasn't really my type of thing. But I mean, I appreciated everything they did because they were incredible. I rem- yeah, and I I had never heard of them, but I I do remember some bands coming through places you know here locally like Cardi's and whatnot. Like mm-hmm. I I remember seeing Pantera when they were coming through oh, well, Cardi's yeah. well, before they were. Pantera, like they were Pantera, of course, well, yeah, but they I'm, weren't Pantera. Okay. Let, me, right? <laughs> let me back up. I don't want to be a dumbass or disrespectful. Yeah, Pantera was around the time the Savage started, but at that time they were a glam band. Yeah, you know, and they still had Terry Glaze singing uh, yep. for them, but they, before they got Phil Anselmo, uh, so of course they were around. So anyway, yeah, I mean Pantera, you know the story. There, don't sure. even need to talk about it. Yeah, so. take the listeners back to the Sunset Strip for just a minute. Sure. Uh, what what was the scene like in the 80s? What What's your recollection of the scene? That part of it was kind of a culture shock because it was different than um, the way it was for us over the rest of the country because we would travel to different cities. We'd have our own PA and lights and set up and play and make you know several thousand dollars and what have you. You go to L.A. and you got to pay to play. So we would pull in and we'd save up enough money to be able to to play one of the clubs, whether it be Whiskey A Go-Go or Gazzari's or the Country Club, and you have to buy a certain amount of tickets. Well, not really. Basically, they hand you like $1,000 worth of tickets, and you can try to sell them, but if you don't sell them, you owe the club that $1,000. Wow. And, and, and I, I'm not going to hold true to the fact that it's exactly 1000 I'm just throwing out a number. Sure. But it was pretty high. Yeah. And, you know, there's – hundreds of other bands trying to do exactly the same thing. So you're not going to get people buy, <laughs> buying your tickets. So basically yeah. you would wind up having to play, uh, pay that thousand dollars to, to pay, play the show. You know, so that was the biggest difference. Um, also it was a, um, it was a circus. I mean, I tell you, I mean, walking around on the sunset, sunset strip those days, you know, when Motley Crue was hitting it and, uh, Rat and all those guys had just made it, and, and everybody wanted to be the next Motley Crue, you know, yeah. Rat and all that. And of course, Guns N' Roses was coming up, and all Faster Pussycat, all those guys. I mean, it was just non stop circus melee insanity on Sunset Strip every single night. I'm sure that every night, I mean, not, not to stereotype 80s rock stars and 80s musicians hair bands in Hollywood, but I'm sure every night was a party of some oh, kind, right? Like, and we don't have to get into the details of the parties, <laughs> right? But you, we, you know, the people that never got to play Sunset, you know, I'm sure there's a stigma there or like, you know, wow, what was it really like to be out there? Because you've seen documentaries, you've seen shows and you're like, wow, it must've been crazy back then. It was, you know? it was an experience and it was, uh, it was wonderful. I mean, you know, the, the, you go to the Rainbow Bar and Grill, and that's where you'd see all the the big rock stars hanging out. I, like I said, that's where I met Tommy Aldridge, and uh, of course the guys in Motley Crue would be there, and Rat would be there. So all the the bands that have just made it, that was kind of their hangout. You know, they wouldn't go to whiskey too much or whatever. I guess maybe if they had some friends in the band or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, and everybody that went to the strip was trying to get a glimpse of one of the rock stars. You sure. Know? So. Up and down the strip, there were just thousands and thousands and thousands of people all over the sidewalk, bands handing out flyers, taping up flyers, stapling flyers to uh, power poles and things like that. It was just, it was nuts, man. It was crazy. And I I guess people were so into that and so dressing the part that you probably couldn't tell a rock star from just an average Joe on the street either because they all were wearing their hair long 
you know, they all had it teased up. They were all wearing the whatever clothes, you know, the zebra print stuff or what. Oh, yeah, it was nuts. I mean, just you, you couldn't tell if at the time, being in Dallas, you could tell who was the rock and roll guy because of the way they dressed, but everybody in Dallas didn't dress like that. Exactly. In L.A., everybody on the Sunset Strip dressed like they were in a band, so yeah. you had no clue who was actually a player or not. Exactly. Now, that's interesting that you, you were saying, like, the places, the big names, uh, the big name venues on Sunset Strip that you you were kind of forced to to pay to go in there and play. No, oh, every club in L.A. area, even in the Valley, like FM Station, uh, and Country Club is in the Valley, but mm-hmm. uh, Gazzari's... Uh, Madam Wong's, I'm trying to remember the name of all the clubs. Madam Wong's, Gazari's, Whiskey A Go Go. Roxy. Cat House was another place with Ricky Rackman. Ricky Rackman. Yeah. He, he ran that. So. It, and it's interesting that you say that because I played a show in Nashville back in October and I talked to a lot of the musicians that I saw playing out there, just kind of side talk. And, you know, a lot of those guys were just playing for tips out there because it's so saturated with musicians. The clubs don't have to pay you unless, you know, maybe you're a big name or you're a real up and comer there. There's probably exceptions to the rules, but a lot of those guys that are cutting their teeth out there and girls, you know, they don't get paid to play. They just go in and what the tips that get left in the bucket, that's what you make for the night kind of thing. Yeah. Cause I mean, right down the streets, Capitol records or, you know, Geffen records or whatever, if you want to, you know, if you don't have the money to do a proper demo and get management, all that kind of stuff, you just want to be seen, you know, you get you get out to the strip and you play the bars and you just you hope and pray that, you know, somebody from one of those labels is going to walk in and like you. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a hell of a crapshoot. I mean, but you, that you didn't really have any choice. So now You guys were packing it, though. I mean, you guys were packing the places that you were playing out there in the day. It was like – it wasn't like you were – you were paying to play in these places and there was like 20 people in the room. They were sold out, right? Well, I don't know if I can say that's exactly factual. We weren't really well known out there at the time. We were just kind of like, okay, here's another band that comes in. And so we'd have decent crowds. Now, over time, it, it started to happen. But initially, no, it was not like that at all. I mean, we were we, we'd play... You know, we held the attendance records at Cardi's in Houston forever. Sure. You know, we'd play in, in front of 1,500 people or 2,000 people in the club and then go out there, and then you're like, well, you're nothing as far yeah. as the, the people out there are concerned. Exactly. Because, you know, there's another 500 bands out there just, just like, like you, you trying yeah. to do exactly what you're doing. Sure. So to stand out, it's it's a tough deal. Did any Did, did you develop friendships out there with any – any of the artists that went on to sign major record deals, and are you in touch with any of those guys at all anymore? Um, I met a lot of guys. Don't remember the name of the band that he was in, but we were the Sweet Savage was pretty good friends with John Karabi, which went oh, yeah. being a singer for sure. Motley Crue. Yeah. Um, I don't know, not really that okay. I can remember. I mean, Joey's got a better memory. <laughs> Right. On this than I sure. do, you know. I was certainly parting it up at the time, so <laughs> a lot of it's a fog. So. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and so I remember you guys playing, you, and you just mentioned it. You know, the local clubs here back in the day, like backstage and and Cardi's. What are your recollections of of the places like Cardi's? And and I was telling Joey real quick in my interview with him that there was a DJ at Cardi's. His name was Ryan. Okay. Oh, Ryan, Ryan. And, okay. and and you guys would do some ACDC at the end of the night, and Ryan would come up and 
and sing, and he could he could blow the the ACDC. He could do it really well. I remember that. Yeah, but he, what, did, he did Brian Johnson great, and also one of the bouncers are Bernie. He would get up there and fake the Angus Young thing. Oh, really? Do you ever meet Bernie? He's like uh-uh. on about six foot eight, big giant guy. No, I didn't. Wow, he he is a wonderful, wonderful human being. What was your recollection of Cardi specifically? It was just a lot of fun. I mean, we would go there and the place was packed and, you know, all the same people would come out and see us. And it was like, it was an event when Savage came to town. Sure. It was, and like I said, it was just like I had mentioned before, it was, we were like probably one of the biggest unsigned bands ever because it was truly, truly a concert. I mean, it wasn't, you just go to a club and you play and some people uh, got 10, 15 people in front of you. Yeah. Uh, you know, is the whole club would come up to, and rush the stage, and you know it was it was it was amazing. Yeah. Well, you you guys, what had was it one EP that you had? Yes. Okay, and there was a song that came off that called "On the Rocks," mm-hmm. and I was going to play a clip of that for the listeners for sure. for some of the folks that may not have heard Sweet Savage back in the day. So we'll we'll come back and chat a little bit about that. Okay. original song that you guys wrote i know that there was one uh was it fox on the run that you guys that was a cover a sweet cover yes right correct. It, was, okay. it was covered by sweet yeah on, uh, the other four songs were all ours yeah. okay now you had played a stint i think post sweet savage with your bandmate joey c jones mm-hmm. uh that band was called pal joey right. is my memory serving me correctly here Okay, and then what did that lineup look like for Pal Joey? Uh, the guitar player, which I just recently got back in touch with, was Shane Hunter. Fantastic, fantastic guy. Uh, the bass player was Kevin Markham. Uh, they were both from Columbus, Ohio. Um, like I said, I just got back in touch with Shane. I've been looking for him for quite a while because after Pal jo- you know, Joey went back to Sweet Savage, and I stayed with Shane and Kevin, and we formed a band called Mad Moxie. Uh, so I I went up staying in L.A. for another couple of years while Joey went back to Savage and then went back to Texas. But uh, I love the band, pal, Joey. It was, um, at the time, I, I think it's a little bit more of a mature type of music. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I had a copy of some of that, you know, but I don't. I mean, Joey may have some of it, but um, it was a great lineup, and, you know, Joey sang the best that he'd ever sang yeah. uh, on that stuff. And so I really liked it. And how long did you guys stick together with pal, Joey? Maybe a year. Okay, um, sure. I, we had a we had a deal, I guess, Criterion Publishing, which is a subsidiary of Warner. I'm hoping I'm saying all that right. We were in the studio, and uh, at some point, Joey had a falling out with our management at the time, and uh, so 
we had some rough tracks of, of that band and then he went back to Savage and that's the rest of that story. Yeah. And after Pal Joey, where did you land from a band perspective? Like I mentioned before, Mad Moxie, Shane and, and Kevin and I stayed together and we uh, uh, recruited a singer out of uh, another guy from Columbus, Ohio, a guy named Tommy John. Wonderful, wonderful human being, great, great vocalist and like I said, we were called Mad Moxie for quite a while and um, stayed with that for a year and a half or so. And then I wound up getting an offer from um, the story circles back around to Michael Mullins, my original bass player from Brittany. He called me up and said that he's found this new guitar player out of San Antonio named Jonathan Grell. And he was uh, in, uh, your listeners may remember this, I don't know, but it was Mike Varney's Spotlight. It was an article, a little caption area inside of Hit Parader magazine. And uh, so Mike sent me some tapes of this guy, and he's one of the most incredible guitar players I've ever heard in my life and wow. still is to this day. Interesting. And uh, I made the decision at that point that, uh, number one, I was homesick. I wanted to go back to Texas. I was tired of L.A. And, of course, I was able to walk into a phenomenal project. And that was like right around 1990, I think. Okay. You just sparked my memory. I've got a whole closet full of Hit Parader magazines up there from the 80s, and, and my wife is always like, can we throw these away? And I'm like, no, we cannot he, throw these away yet. Yeah, he might be in one of those. I mean, it was it was a it was called Mike Varney Spotlight. Okay. Uh, um, oh, I can't remember. I'm not going to try to. That's fine. I'll have to go dig through it. And maybe see if I can stumble across it. Now, you currently play in a band called Swamp Hippies. Correct. Right. And how long has that project been going on? Well, that's another long story in itself. The the singer is Maston Walker and. Um, after I wound up leaving Wintercat, which was the project, with uh, Jonathan Grell, I joined Bang Bang, and that's where I met Maston Walker. And from that moment on, we've been in about five or six different projects together. And uh, so that's a culmination of all the the Swamp Hippie material. And Bang Bang was was basically a, a glam-type band, up-tempo rock, but Maston always played acoustic guitar, so we had a, a couple of acoustic songs. And... Okay. I expressed my interest in those particular songs because I thought that thought they were great songs and thought we should do more of them. So over a period of time, you know, Maston kept writing and kept going and kept going. So Swamp Hippie technically has about 40-plus songs, and it all started from that point. Um, so it's just been just went through different versions, just solid acoustic versions, culminated into Mind, Body, Soul with Stacey yep. Steele, yep. and then switched back to the Maston Walker uh, project, and which turned into Swamp Hippie. So it's a... It's a long, long history of, wow. of music. There's yeah. a lot of stuff. So share with the listeners like some of the places that Swamp Hippies have played. It, it seems like if my if my old memory serves me correctly, there might have been a House of Blues show. Was, yeah. uh, am I dreaming that or was, was that no, my we, spot on there? Yeah, we did a House of Blues show. We've done Acadia. Um, we've done, what was the club we were just talking about? Uh, the Concert Pub North. Concert Pub North. We played there. Played the nineteenth hole, and just to, you know, uh, forget about it, which turned oh, into yeah. um, uh, FBI rocks. FBI, yeah. FBI, yeah. <laughs> and I guess at one point the office was, which was what we're, where forget about it was, was turned into the office, which is now something else. Okay. So yeah, just you know the local places around town. Sure, and not really getting outside of the Houston area, right? No, it's no. Okay. <laughs> That's all I can say. And. Uh, I know we're coming out of COVID. 
and things are kind of opening up. I don't knock on wood. Is there anything coming up for Swamp Hippies from a show perspective that that you can talk about or are you guys actively looking to book or are you not doing that yet or are you just trying to play it by ear, kind of yeah, pull us in what you're thinking? We're looking to put some things together now that the, the clubs are starting to open back up and COVID's dropping off. Uh, we'll start hitting it again full tilt. It's just we, you know, with COVID, I mean, it, it, it killed a lot of bands. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of people just couldn't play, couldn't work, couldn't do anything. So, But now that it's starting to open back up, we're definitely going to start getting out. Uh, like I said, we just played – Acadia uh, a couple of months ago we did the 19th hole and uh, we're going to start playing more and more uh, hopefully hopefully a lot more so yeah I talked to uh, a couple of guys John Evans is a local musician here big name in in, in Texas kind of like a uh, rockabilly I guess and he, he had mentioned that during COVID he did one of these Facebook live shows and and couldn't believe the amount of money that he made from doing this Facebook live thing. And then I had a, another interview with Randy Jackson from Zebra. He plays every day uh, online. And I'm sure that he, he's always got a few hundred people on his show. And, you know, they're setting up the virtual tip jar and they're able to make a, a I wouldn't call it make a living. I don't know if it's really subsidizing what they're making on the road, but some of them do pretty damn well with the the virtual tips. And I think that Randy would tell you that he does, and, and certainly John said he, he he could just hear his phone ding, 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 ding with all the money oh, that was great. getting. So, you know, you got to um, – I've always said you got you, you have to remain relevant even in hard right. times. You adapt, migrate, or die is pretty much what it boils down to. And, you know, you can curl up in the fetal position and, you know, let the world pass you by, or you can find a way to stay relevant. And that's what a lot of these guys have done, and, you know – Kudos to them for thinking outside the box a little bit, you know. Right. You mentioned Mastin Walker a little bit, and he is the it's singer. Singer, for, guitar for, player for okay. Swamp Hippies, yes. And, and I guess him and yourself go back years to the 90s with Mind, Body, Soul, right? right? And then Stacy Steele, who's a friend of mine, was in that band as well. I do want to mention that, you know, the, the bass player for Swamp Hippies is Jeff Clifton. I don't want to leave him out because he's a very very integral part of what swamp hippies is but go back to mind body soul sure no and that's uh you know was that's one of the questions i was going to ask what that lineup you know oh. what the the full band lineup of course i know stacy and i know who yeah. you are and 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 i know of Mastin. i've never met him but uh i i wondered who there has to be somebody else in the rhythm section of the band oh, right yeah. so. jeff, jeff clifton he's he's wonderful great vocals and we've got all the songs that we do have got really, really nice three-part harmonies, and you know, uh, Jeff is an integral part of, of the project. So, and where is he now? Uh, he's in here, in, here in Houston. Oh, is he? Okay. So, over the the years, you've had some solo efforts with Ty Tabor, correct? Correct. And Ty is, or what? What's the status of Kings X right now? I'm, I'm not. Well, they're, yeah, they're, they're still together. Oh, of course. Okay. Yeah. They, okay. They never broke up. They had some. Uh, I think Jerry had some health issues a couple of couple of years back, and they had to cancel some shows. But he's on the mend; he's fine. They were scheduled to come to Houston before uh, the COVID thing hit, and I think they've rescheduled. Uh, I just got a notice on Facebook from a friend of mine. I think in September they're supposed to come back to Houston, but yeah, okay. they're, they're still fine. They're they're still kicking it. Now is um, 
I think that Ty had a studio in Katy, but that Correct. moved to Kansas or something like that. He's in Missouri right Missouri. now. Yeah, the studio in Katy, that's where I recorded uh, the three records that I did with Ty. Okay, and is, is he still living here? or no, is no, he? No. So? He, moved, he moved to Missouri. Oh, he did. Okay, yeah. I didn't know if just the business went there and he stayed here and is no, working he, on something else. Yeah, I think Doug lives in L.A., uh, up Jerry lives in New Jersey, and Ty lives so in So they're Missouri. all over the place. Well, I remember being a, a young guy just getting married and trying to afford my first house, and uh, that was many years ago. But I remember taking a – I was working for an oil and gas company at the time, and I was working a part-time gig at Sound Warehouse on Derry Ashford, and I think it was Derry Ashford and Westheimer, and Doug used to come into the store all the time. In fact, I think I've got the, the Gretchen – record up in my memorabilia room that he signed back in the day i think i might have a stick of yours too from the 80s i'm gonna have to <laughs> i'm gonna go see if i have that still but so ty was the lead guitarist or is the lead guitarist for king's x and mm-hmm. then he did the solo stuff and you were on some of those efforts correct? Yeah, talk did, a little bit about those yeah the first one he did was a uh, naomi solar pumpkin which uh i believe he used a drum machine on and then he there was a second one Oh, Moonflower Lane, and then the third one was Safety, and then after that I came in the picture, and um, I did, in 2006, the album was called uh, Rock Garden, and then in 2008 we did Balance, and then 2010 we did Something's Coming. Okay. I wanted to play for the listeners a track off the Rock Garden effort, and it's a song called Ride. We'll, oh, we'll take a listen to that. That's and, my favorite uh, song off of that record. A good call by me, right? Yeah. yeah, so we'll listen to that and we'll come back and chat. song it and when i went through and listened to all of them off that off that release that was the one that jumped out to me for whatever reason i don't even know why it was but then you just mentioned that that was one of your favorites off of that uh effort as well correct yeah, this guitar solo on that is incredible yes. i really really love it it was a it was a joy working with that guy in the studio it was just amazing we talk about elevating your game, right? He's one of those guys that, that makes you step your game up a little bit, I, I assume, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of that record, which part of it that was so amazing to me is that a lot of it wasn't written. So he would kind of stumble around on a riff a little bit, and he'd say, start playing, and then 
I, he'd get he'd hear me do a groove that he liked, and he'd say, "Okay, we'll just." And he's talking to me in the headphones. It's okay. Just keep going. Keep playing. Keep playing. Okay. When I count to four, I want you to switch over to your right. Do a do a fill and switch over to your right, and then but keep playing the same groove. And so I do the fill and start playing the right. I'm playing to nothing. He's right. talking to me. Jeez. Then I I mean I come back the next day and then he wrote the song to what I played. But he he had the he started putting the song together in his mind. I mean that was the most astounding things I've ever <laughs> dealt with in my life. That I mean he did that. Some of it he had written, some of it he didn't, but that was one of the most amazing experiences that a guy could do something like that, just talk me through my drum parts, and then I come sure. back the next day and there's music written to it. So In my world, uh, information technology, when you're doing something outside the box, you're called a visionary, right? And the first thing I thought of him when you were saying all that, do this, do that, and didn't even have the song in his head. I mean, he he knew what he wanted, right? But there was no song form that he it was kind of work in progress in his mind. He was visioning the whole thing, right? When, yeah. when he heard you playing this and it's, it's, you can either do that kind of stuff with music or you can't. I don't, yeah. I don't think there's this happy medium where you can dabble in it. I think you're either good at that kind of thing or you're, and that's what separates the, I guess the shitty writers from the really, really good writers. Yeah. He's a, to, to me, he's a genius. I mean, uh, it was, a. Uh, Again, I mean, I can't say it enough, and I'll say it over and over. It was just an absolute joy to be able to work with him in the studio. And then I did the first record, and I thought that was going to be it. And then he asked me to come back for the second record, and I just about had a heart attack on that one because I wasn't expecting that. And then, lo and behold, I got to do a third one. So then, unfortunately, he moved to Missouri. That was the end of that. But it's definitely three of the best projects I've ever been involved with. I mean, it was just Probably the highlight of my musical career was yeah. being able to work with Ty because, I mean, just, just the type of player he is and how seasoned and how professional, uh, it, it was it was incredible. Did you feel like you had to step your game up with him or did you did you feel like you just, it was normal no, playing I, at that level, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, no, I was, I'm not saying that you aren't a technical player right. and that you aren't a great player. I'm just saying sometimes we we get in with somebody, whether it's on the basketball court or whether it's with music, and we're just a little out of our league. Like, we're good, but we're not maybe at that level. I mean, did did he help you to elevate, or do you yeah. feel like you were kind of there already? Like, no. what were your thoughts on you know? I, I was scared shitless, Yeah, right. <laughs> to tell you the truth. I mean, but, you know, when I settled in, you know, midway point through um, Rock Garden. Yeah, and being able to play with, with somebody of that level, you certainly, certainly, it, it, you like to think that you're playing the best that you can play, and 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 that's what I thought that I did, and um, you know anybody can listen to all this stuff and tell me different if they want to, but I'm I'm pretty satisfied with what I, I was able to accomplish with this with the work. And was there any was there any touring or shows to support any of those efforts, or was it really just you know we're laying down the stuff where, you know, maybe he's selling it, maybe he's not. There Was there any live shows to support those efforts? There weren't any. Um, my understanding was is that there might have been with uh, Rock Garden. That album came out on Inside Out Europe, the label Inside Out Europe, and he seemed to think that we might. He wasn't sure. That didn't happen. And then so from that point, I pretty much knew that there was not going to be able to be any top of terrain because you know he was doing this in between the king's x stuff so yeah when he got through with it then he'd go right into the studio with king's x and then they would do a tour and then of course he had 
has other projects, you know, Jelly Jam, where he yeah. plays with Rod Morgenstein and John Young, a bass player from Dream Theater. And uh, he just, he's got projects out the ass. Yeah. <laughs> he's got so much stuff going on. So, and of course, King's X is and the, is the, King's is X. the, is the baby. So everything's going to revolve around King's X. Like yeah. nothing's going to get in the way of that project. Right. Exactly. You yeah. know, I mean, I, I kind of hoped, but then I pretty much realized pretty quick that that was not going to happen, but that's okay. I mean, I'm, Certainly content with being able to Absolutely. do the work that I did. So. Three, three records. I yeah. mean, that's pretty. That's a pretty nice accolade there, I would think. Yeah. From a vocal perspective, how much vocal sharing or how much vocal background or backup vocal came from you in bands like Savage and and with Ty? Like, were you a pretty heavy singer or zero? None. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I, I can, and with Swamp Hippies, I'm a very integral part. I thought like you to, were. I thought yeah. you sang when I saw you playing at Concert Pub North. That's what why I sat here and was I was generating this in my head because I heard background vocals on Ride, and of course well, a lot of this. That's Ty, sure. You know, yeah, and I thought it was multi-tracking or whatever, but I didn't know if you were part of that or no, not. No, it's Swamp Hippies. Like I said, the three of us were very, very important because everything's got real nice three-part harmonies in Swamp Hippies. It's it's a very vocal band. Uh, I can obviously sing. Ty wanted to do everything himself. Sweet Savage, if there was a background vocal, it was more of a chant thing. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't a lot of like real pretty harmonies back in the glam days, you sure. know, it was like scream and yell. And so, and then of course, back, you know, I'm spinning drumsticks and throwing them up in the air and jumping up and down. So, yeah. Can't keep a microphone in front of that. So. <laughs> Not like Phil Collins, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> of the three records that Ty put out where you. Uh, took care of the the percussion piece were there any songs that I, I know you said you liked ride but was there another song on one of those three records that w- was your song like that's the one yeah. that you just really yeah on balance the the opening track money mouth uh i love that song you know it's just look i played with ty i like them <laughs> i like them all you know but that you know money mouth it was just such a high energy song i really really dug that i loved the groove Ride, I love not so much for my playing, but for the guitar work. And then, you know, the thing about Ty, he, he's such a, a mood writer. I mean, he can write something very, very aggressive, very hard. And then he can write some of the most beautiful ballads that you'll ever hear and some of the most whispering guitar solos and then some of the most really aggressive, yeah. abrasive guitar Heavy solos. Heavy stuff, yeah. No, he's just, he's just all over the map about what he can do. Yeah. So it just it, it was wonderful. Like I said, working with him. So some of the I ask that question of my guests a lot that are original artists. You know, your favorite, you know, record uh, was there a favorite track off of it? And it's it, I'm not called. You know, I I think sometimes I sit back and I think of that question. It's like, am I phrasing that right? Because we're not calling. The, the rest of the song shitty, right? right, we're, right. We're, we're just, I mean, sometimes there's just a song that just, you know, that, man, that was my song on that. You well, know, dr- yeah, you know drum, what I'm saying? Yeah. They're all great songs because right. that's that that's your baby, right? And if you had 10 kids, you know, you would not say, well, that one's ugly and that right. one's okay. <laughs> Look, I mean, right. from, from a drum standpoint, it would be uh, Money Mouth. Money Mouth, okay. If that's kind of where you were going. But yeah, yeah. That, to me, that was the, the coolest most creative groove I did on everything. Everything was pretty much straightforward because I was just playing within what Ty gave me. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I certainly didn't 
want to jump out and try to step on any toes. I tried to stay well within the context of the song and not try to overplay or anything. And he probably wouldn't have let me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, but Money Mouth, I really, really like that that drum groove. That would be the one I would say drum wise. Okay. I'll have to go back and pay special attention to that one and, and check it out. Would you say that in all of the bands that you've been in, when the songwriting is occurring, is it usually drums that are one of the last things to be pieced into the puzzle or or, or what in your in your track record with the bands was, you know, was the drum the forethought or kind of come out, okay, we've got the melody, we've got, you know, the bass line and we kind of know the tempo, fill it in or where, where did the drums come in in the songwriting process? Kind of like what I mentioned with, with the tie record is kind of the same thing as like you, the guitar player will come up with a riff and then I start playing along with that riff and they just kind of, you know, experiment with different grooves and what works good. And then, you know, once we start playing that part, then, you know, the guitar player or the bass player might get an idea of where to take the next spot. And then there's times where a guy might come in with a completed song, you know, and then I've, then I've got to put in my stuff. And then when I put what I feel like it should be there, then they may go back and decide they want to change the, you know, the rhythm of, of their particular guitar part because they like what I'm doing with the drums and they want to match it. So it, it kind of goes back and forth, but I feel like that everything I've ever been in, I've been a pretty integral part of getting everything started and rolling. Sure. You know, when you record in the studio, are you maybe kind of a dumb question, but do, do most drummers drum or record their tracks to click tracks or, or are, are there some drummers out there that are just that good with the tempo that they don't, need to is that a is that a fair question or yeah, is that a kind of a question. silly question I, I don't know that i can answer it because i can only speak for myself i always record with a click track okay. because the, the reason you do that is that if if you want to go back and you want to change your guitar part then you know you, you've got that that constant groove thing okay. going on that makes um, sense. now are there drummers that don't need a click track i would probably imagine so neil yeah. peart you know rod morgenstein i mean all those cats like that, I mean, probably not. But then again, they may say they do anyway. Yeah. But I, ju- I just don't know. Sure. I haven't been privy to their situation. So. We talked a little off the record before we jumped into the interview, and we talked about recordings from the Swamp Hippies. I think I'd ask you before, I think yesterday, if you had anything out there. You also mentioned on the show that you, you guys had probably 40-some-odd songs. Can the listeners find this stuff anywhere, the the music? I don't. Some of it may be. Uh, Masson and I have recorded a lot of music. It's just been under different titles. For instance, the record that we recorded in Ty's studio is uh, Masson Walker, obviously the, is the name of the project. But the album was called uh, Tampering with the Laws of Goodness. And you can't get that. Somebody may have it because we had some printed the, ironically, me recording that in Ty's studio is what got me the gig for the Ty record. So, yeah. but uh, and th- you know, Mastin has has put out some stuff on his own that that um, us, that's some of the Swamp Pippy stuff that we are doing. The stuff that has been recorded. Now, have we gone in the studio as Swamp Pippies and re-recorded with with Jeff and Mastin and I? No. Okay. But of course, that's certainly on the table at some point. We hope. Sure. You know, because we have a lot of wonderful material that we want to get recorded and get out there, but. Well, I think that you have a lot of fans over the years, right? I mean, from your Britney days to your Sweet Savage days and, of course, the Ty Tabor stuff. 
people want to hear. I think everybody's always wanting to hear new stuff from the people that they love to hear stuff from. So I would probably speak for them by saying that, you know, the, the better, you know, I guess the sooner you guys can get some stuff out there, I'm sure they'd love to hear it. Yeah, for we, sure, would, right? we would love to because, you know, especially since when we added, you know, Jeff Clifton and that really took our, our vocal harmonies to a different level. And once he got in, I was like, man, we've got to get this shit on tape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we've got to get it out there because I've never been involved with a band that has three-part harmonies like we do. Wow. And it's it's one of those things where, the tonality of everybody's voice meshes really, really awesome. nice. You know, we've had a lot of people come up to us at some of our acoustic shows, and just, they just go, "Oh my God, man, you guys sing incredible!" You know, and uh, and it's through a lot of hard work. I'm not trying to toot my own horn or nothing, but right. we we busted our ass to try to sure. sound that good. So yeah, we want to get it on tape. We want people to hear it, but uh, unfortunately, that uh, opportunity has just not presented itself yeah. yet. We talked a little bit about, you know, either you're a great songwriter or you, you're just a lyrical airhead, you know, and you can't think of a song to write. And I think that holds true for a lot of vocalists that they can sing or they're pretty good at singing, but not all of them can harmonize. So if you guys can, if you're, got, if you're holding three-part harmonies down together, that's, that's impressive because a lot of people can't do that. Right, you know, Mass. I started experimenting with vocals a lot when Mass and I were doing acoustic shows in between the mind, body, soul stuff, and in between the Thai things like that. So, I've worked real hard over the years, and and like I said, once we got Jeff and we were able to add that third part, you know, I had to switch from singing a, a, a high note above Mastin to going un- underneath. Yeah, Mastin. sure. Because like everything I do is underneath Mastin, Mastin's root, and the Jeff's a high part. So okay. And we once we got that structure that every time we attack a harmony, that's what we do. That gave us a, a level of consistency uh, with with all of the music that we have. So, yeah, and my brain's running for questions. Right, I mean, I'm I'm thinking of like 90 questions to ask you, but I'm like, okay, no, we're not gonna ask all these questions because I'm a you know, it's always interesting how you key songs, and and again, we're not gonna get into all that. But what we will get into is some quick fire questions. And so I'll ask you these and you can just uh, shout out a single answer. If you feel like you need to elaborate on one, that's certainly fine too. But uh, how about uh, Beatles or the Stones? Beatles. Peart or Moon? Peart. Summer or winter? Summer. Working outside, I guess you you wouldn't say. Well, actually working outside kind of made me not like summers as much. much. I love being on the water and fishing. Yeah, sure. Okay. How about TV or radio? That's a tough one. Depends on what's on TV. (laughs) And usually there's nothing on TV, right? I got, I got rid of cable like two years, two years ago. And I just, I don't, I don't have time to watch it, but it was never anything on that I was really interested in. Acoustic or electric drums? Oh, acoustic. Why? Electric. I mean, I have an electronic kit. I've got a Roland, and they've gotten a lot better. But it's just nothing. Electronic has gotten better. I'll say that. But just acoustic drums. You know, it's it helps you define your personality drum wise because you've got to spend the time tuning and and choosing what type of head that you like and what type of cymbals you want to play and what type of sticks you use and all those things are variables that have to do with your unique sound. I mean, I've played the same snare drum, uh, same drum kit since 1985. I've got a Yamaha recording series kit, and I've used the same heads since 1985, Lumo Emperor heads. You know, so, yeah, acoustic helped you to define your personality musically. Electronic drums don't afford you that. 
Would you say that this is kind of off top? I mean, it's on that same topic. It wasn't a quick fire question, but would you say that if you have a studio like, like mine, it's not a huge studio. It's, you know, it's in the house kind of thing, but do you think that an electronic kit is good for situations like that? If you're not, of course, I'm not going to go out and play drums at a gig or something like that, but do they suffice for the house and studio use or do you, Depends on what the project is. I okay. mean, you know, just if it's something that I'm very, very passionate about, then probably not. Okay. But if if, if I'm hired to come in and, and just perform and do do some tracks for somebody, then, you know, yeah, sure, you can get away with it. And especially now with the rolling kits that have the mesh heads. Before, they had the, the hard plastic heads, so you, there was no... Yeah. You didn't have any dynamics. Like now with the mesh heads, you can hit the head soft and it's it sounds soft and you can hit it hard and, and the volume goes that up. Before sense. the plastic heads or the hard rubber heads, whatever they were, you just you had one volume. That's there was it. no dynamics, period, okay. at all. That makes sense. And that's one of the things that I hated about electronic drums when they first started to come out. But like I said, the, the rolling mesh heads have, have kind of helped to correct that. And also you can tune the head tighter, you know, just like a regular drum head so you can get a better action off of it. And again, the volumes, the dynamics, sure. So. Would you say that the symbols are, are, have progressed to on the electric kits? Like, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm using the right terminology, but the, the grab, you know, like when you hit the, you know, the, the crash symbol, right. right. And you, and you grab it, right. To mute it out. What would you say that that technology has come a long way where it will simulate an actual, you know, Catch or grab, I'm not sure what you call it in the drum Yeah, world, I right? don't know because I don't really do that with my electronic kit. Now, uh, Craig LeMay, we've spoke, uh, t- spoken about him before. He right. came over to help me, you know, kind of tweak some things out on it, and uh, he was doing that. He was hitting it and grabbing it and let me know that you can actually do this. But, you know, it's – I use it f- just for practice. Okay. You know, just for rehearsals, me and Madison come in the bedroom. I can We can play at 1 o'clock at night. So, because you don't bother anybody, you can control the volume. So, exactly. So, it's, it's not something that I've actually tried to refine to the point to where I'm actually going to do a recording with it, and then I might try to, you know, figure that part of it out. But mm-hmm. as of right now, I just don't know. Okay, fair enough. I asked Guy Gelso, the drummer of Zebra, this question, and I wasn't sure that the question would even make sense, but apparently it did to him. Favorite drum in the entire set? Oh, it has to be the snare drum. Okay. Uh, just because that affords you the widest array of possibilities with your tone. And uh, that's the, the thing that you can change so dramatically one way or the other to define what your snare drum sound is. You know, the, the kick drum to a point, tones to a point, but your snare drum is the most, I think of the word, can't think of it. It's probably the drum with the most character. Would you would would that be a fair yeah, statement? Yeah, yeah. You, you've got such a wide array of possibilities with the sound of a snare drum that you may or may not have with a tom. Okay. Kick drum, so. Are you a country guy at all? Um, being from Mississippi, basically, of course. I mean, I I, I appreciate and love the old time country music. The new crap that's out there the new country stuff i'm not really not really my thing you know i mean it just sounds like bon jovi with a twang yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> you know, to me you know i don't hope i don't make anybody mad but i mean they're okay songs it's formula stuff you know. sure how about early bird or night owl depends on what what year you're talking about in general in general uh, i guess i'd still be night owl okay 
now that you're working the early, probably in your line of work, I'm sure you guys don't get to work at 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm sure you're pretty no. early guys, right? Yeah. So, so I guess part of you is a early bird because oh, you yeah. have to be, but if, if you took all of those things out of the picture, right. And you were just a bum sitting at home every day, oh, night owl. Night yeah. owl. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, favorite place of all time that you've played. What's your favorite room that just was the room for you? And, and it can be for any reason, right? It could be tonality. It can be crowd. It can be anything. What room sticks out in your head is the man, I guess it would it'd have to be the whiskey. You know, just from the, you know, we played Troubadour, the whiskey, and Gazzari's. You know, the, the whiskey just because of the aura, you sure. know, the, the nostalgia. Never thought I would be there, you know, to do it, and we did it. So th- that was the one that, like, I came out on stage. And, and although, and trust me, it's not really that great of a club. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. a, it's basically a hole-in-the-wall. But the fact to be on the same stage, like Jim Morrison was on and, God Absolutely. knows everybody. I mean, that's just, it's a historical location. Yeah. And when the first time I walked out on stage to play, that's what I thought about is all the uh, wonderful legends, legends that yes. had been on that stage. So, yeah, I'd say the whiskey. And that's interesting that you say that. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. You you think of places like the whiskey as this mystical place that has, you know, room for thousands and thousands of people the Alamo in Texas, right? We, we've we read about it all of our lives in Texas history, and you go there and you're like, where's the rest of it? You know, yeah. it's just, it's so small, but it's been made into this big, big thing in our minds. The Bluebird Cafe in Nashville. If, you, if you've never played in Nashville, I mean, that's the club to play there. You know, of course, the Ryman is and the Opry is, but um, the Bluebird is a very famous place but you go there and it's it's almost like a buzzkill because it's in a little strip center with a torn awning out front and you're like really this is it you know but there's been many famous people that have played that room so i went to we visited new york once and i um i went to cbgb's and that place is a hole yeah (laughs) yeah you know i was just stunned about how much that club wasn't what i thought it was exactly so it it's almost a little depressing. Like you, you built these things up to be great places in the mind. You get there and you're just like, it's a little lackluster, like, mm, yeah, not yeah. so great after all. But anyway, favorite song. Well, this is probably not going to apply for the Thai uh, stuff, but if, if you guys did support that material with uh, live shows, what do you think the favorite song to play live would be? Oh, it would have been a ride. Right. Okay. Yeah, just because it's it's a it's a bit of an extended song and it's got two separate solos and and again it's you know go back and listen to it and listen to Ty's solos it it's in it's just an incredible guitar solo. I mean, I've listened to it a thousand times and yeah. every time I listen to it, I get chills. Yeah. It's, it's just that guy just has the ability to to do solos like nobody I've ever heard. It, it very much stuck out in my mind too. It's like, wow, that's some pretty pretty technical playing there it sounds really good if i ask the same question of savage what song what was your song back in the day what was your favorite song to do by savage when you guys played live probably breakaway okay it was uh, that was one on the first record and that was actually written by lance ross he was he was in Brittany for a while and then came over into savage 
he was actually the first guitar player for Savage, and then Michael Scott came in. Let me get my chronology together. Right. So yeah, he he came into um, Savage, and then then Michael Scott, but he wrote uh, he wrote Breakaway. And that was off the EP. That's I remember, EP, yeah. yeah. And uh, was cut it out an, an original yeah. tune by you guys? Yeah. That, that was always one of my favorites. Formal training on the drums. Yeah, yeah. Um, the funny part of it is, is I would just said come back from LA. I, at the time, I was in Bang Bang. I'd already done the Winter Cat thing, and it was in Bang Bang, and that's where I, I met the uh, the great Craig LeMay. He was at one of my shows, and. He just walked up to me and he goes, "Hi, I'm Craig LeMay. And if you ever think about taking drum lessons, here's my card. Give me a call." And I and he turned around and walked away. And I was like, "Man, f this! <laughs> what do you mean drum lessons? <laughs> Who are you fucking talking to?" <laughs> but you know, I thought I kept his card and I thought about it for a couple of weeks. And I said, "You know, I found out that actually he had he had uh, taught Bobby Rock and Bloss Elias." Oh yeah. You know, so I said, "I'm." I, Probably should give this guy a call, and he he certainly changed my drumming life for sure. He he took me to another level that I was not at. Yeah, you know, if it hadn't been for him, there's a lot that I'm doing now that I would not be able to do without him. For sure. So Bobby Rock, he he was an I think a Houston guy, yeah, right? Yeah. And then left and went and auditioned for the Vinnie Vincent Invasion, right? And landed yeah, we, that we gig. Were, we were in the hallway together because I auditioned for that too. Oh, did you? Yeah, I went in first, and. Uh, I I knew that it was over. Bobby going in after me because it was uh there's no way that I was gonna win something over that guy. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's beyond incredible. Uh, Joey had a lot of nice things to say about him. Yeah, uh, he's a great, great guy, wonderful guy, caring guy. Yeah, known him all these years, and you know, was he? I'm I'm trying to remember. So I, I was he a drum instructor at H and H Music here? Does that I sound don't know. familiar I, to you? I didn't. I knew of him. He he would come see Savage. I kind of knew of him. I didn't. We knew. Found out more about him after I, I lost that audition. You know, I started doing some research about who he was and what he did. Sure. And uh, so, but I I don't know. As good as he is, probably. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can't see him not teaching. You know, all I know is that I don't. I don't know to what extent that he worked with Craig. I'll know that they actually did work together, and they remain. Um, best of friends to this day okay and it seems like if my memory serves me correctly he might have done some producing with dana strum well dana strum was uh our producer he he produced okay. the sweet savage record okay and uh that's actually how i got the audition okay. uh, for the vinnie vincent invasion and then uh, dana strum was the bass player for the vinnie vincent invasion and then bobby got that gig so that's how they stayed together yeah, and for the listeners that are wondering who who the hell is Vinnie Vincent, right? He was one of the the guitarists that uh, was in Kiss. Yeah, he was for a, a while. I think that it might have been the third replacement. Yeah. I think there was a Mark Saint John, John was yeah, one. Yeah, uh, Kulik, Bruce Kulik, and then I think Vinnie, and then uh, Tommy something is the new guy. I can't remember. I don't, know. I don't follow Kiss too much. I don't. Anymore. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, interesting. Well, Randy, I, I want to thank you for um, being gracious with your time and, and joining me here. And uh, I, I wish you all the success in the world. And hopefully the Swamp Pippies get out and start playing some shows and you get some of that stuff recorded so we can make sure we get it in the hands of the listeners. As always, I want the listeners to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. And if you can do a review on the show, that would be super awesome. 
as always, you can find us on Facebook at Backstage Pass Radio Podcast, on Instagram at Backstage Pass Radio, Twitter is at Backstage Pass PC, and then on the website at BackstagePassRadio.com. You guys make sure to take care of yourselves and each other, and we'll see you right back here on the next episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Make sure to follow Randy on Facebook and Instagram at Randy Halsey Music and on Twitter at R Halsey Music. Also make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on alerts for upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to share the link with a friend and tell them Backstage Pass Radio is the best show on the web for everything music. We'll see you next time right here on Backstage Pass Radio.